I may be the only person who pays any attention to the song credits. Uh, That one is attributed to the wrong person, though. It was not written by Anna Waring. It was written by W.Y. Fullerton. W.Y. Fullerton was one of uh, C.H. Spurgeon's right-hand men, and uh, he wrote a biography of C.H. Spurgeon, which is my favorite biography of C.H. Spurgeon. Uh, So if you have never read a biography of C.H. Spurgeon, see if you can find the one by W.Y. Fullerton. It's really, really good. My text for this morning is from Luke chapter 4. Those of you who are here all the time know that I'm preaching through the life and teachings of Jesus. Uh, But for you new folks, that's uh, what's going on here, teaching through preaching through the life and teachings of Jesus. And uh, the ministry of Jesus lasted about three and a half years. Some people think only two and a half, but uh, most think about three and a half years. And it can generally be divided into these categories. There's the year of obscurity. Then there's the year of popularity. Thirdly, there's the year of persecution, and then comes the end, so about three and a half years. We have just uh, covered the very brief material that we have on the year of obscurity. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record mostly the same events, and that's why they are called the synoptic gospels. Uh, And John records uh, mostly things that are not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So probably John wrote his gospel later in life, and it was meant to be supplemental to uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is the only one who records uh, anything that happened during the year of obscurity. But we're at the end of the year of obscurity, and now we come to the year of popularity. Although you will, as you will see from my text this morning, It was not a year of uninterrupted popularity. Before I read this text, I want to ask you a question. If the power of the Spirit of God was on you the way that it was on Jesus, what would be the first thing that you would do? Probably you think like I do, that, uh, well, I can think of some people that I'd like to see healed. You know, I might... Go down here and shake hands with Don, Don Landrum and say, Brother, you're, you're, healed from, uh, you're healed from your liver condition. I might go back and shake hands with Juanita Shepherd and Bud Shepherd and say, Y'all are healed. I might go over and touch Sean Godbold on the head and say, You, you can re- be restored to clear thinking. I love you, Sean. I, I like your jokes. If, if other people don't like your jokes, I do. <laughs> so I felt free that I could uh, jab, jab you in public like that. He'll get me later on, I guarantee it. <clears throat> well, uh, when the Spirit of the Lord was powerfully upon Jesus, he preached. And, uh, well, if you put it that way, then you say, could I revise my answer? I would, like to, I would like to see these people healed. I really would. But I've got some people in my family and some friends that, boy, I sure would like for them to. I sure would like for them to hear the gospel when the, when the power of God is present to save. I sure would like to see them, see them get healed of their spiritual sickness. 
We see that when uh, the Spirit of the Lord was powerfully on Jesus, that is what he did. Not everyone was pleased with it. Let me read this entire text, and then we'll go back and see some of the lessons that stand out. Luke chapter 4, beginning with verse 14. It won't come up on the screen until verse 16, I guess, but uh, Luke chapter 4 and verse 14 says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now, just a few comments along the way. So there's a rumor that goes out. Already he has done some noteworthy things in Jerusalem, and word, word about this miracle worker has come back. Galilee is his home region, and so there's a rumor that he's come back. And uh, when it says that he was glorified by all, it just means that everyone spoke well of him. It's not glorified in the way that we seek to bring, bring glory to God, but that they, they admired him as a, as a miracle worker and as a good teacher. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Now, I I can imagine what an emotional experience this must have been for Jesus. I mean, he is looking into the faces of people that have known him since he was a little boy. Uh, I, I sometimes go back and preach at the church where I grew up in southeastern Ohio. And uh, there are fewer and fewer people there who knew me as a little boy, but there still are a few. And it is an emotional experience to look out into the faces of that, that congregation of people that I loved. And in a place where I loved and where every, like every square inch of that property where the church is, we grew up in the parsonage, every square inch of that, that real estate has some kind of a meaning and some kind of a memory for me. So no doubt it was the same way when Jesus went back to Nazareth. And he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath as was his custom. So uh, that's one of the few things that we know about Jesus during his growing up years is that he, he established a custom that on the Sabbath day he would go to the synagogue. And that's a very good custom to have. Only, of course, we don't go to synagogues. We go to church on the Lord's Day. And uh, the synagogues were not perfect places. The synagogues were under the dominion of people who eventually would cry out for the crucifixion of Jesus. But Jesus still felt like it was important. And he thought that it was essential that as God's son, he would go to the place where God's people meet. And so that's a lesson that we can glean by the way. When it is the Lord's day, let's be in the house of the Lord with God's people. Is there a perfect church? No, this church is not perfect. And no other church is perfect, but we need to be together with God's people. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." And when I read this a few minutes ago from Isaiah chapter 61, I noted that the next phrase is to declare the day of the Lord's vengeance. And Jesus stops there. He doesn't read that next phrase because in his first coming, he never came to declare the day of the Lord's vengeance. Instead, in his first coming, he came to declare the day of God's grace and the day of God's mercy. So he stops here. We'll go back 
in a few minutes and see that this is the keynote of Jesus' ministry. Now let's continue, verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now let me just pause there and say, When Jesus was born a little baby in Bethlehem of Judea, he, he, could, he was not born talking. He was not born potty trained. He had to learn what a child learns in his first couple of years. And he learned how to talk. And his first words were not articulately spoken. I'm sure that Mary and Joseph were delighted when he said something close to mama and daddy, whatever the words in Aramaic would have been. And so he, <clears throat> he had to learn things. And sometime in the life of this child, probably before he was 12, he came to understand that he was not like other boys. He came to understand that God had put a special task upon him. And sometime during his lifetime, he came to realize that he was no mere human, that he was God's son. We don't know how the divine nature communicated with the human nature. And so I hope I haven't spoken out of line to say that there was a time when he came to understand the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and that when I read this passage of Scripture from Isaiah, what we call Isaiah 61, chapters weren't were divided up, and the books of the Bible weren't divided up into chapters until about 500 years ago. And so when he reads this place in the book of Isaiah, it dawns upon him, this was written about me. Can you imagine what an emotional experience that must have been? To realize that years and years before he was born, God inspired men to write truth about him and the life that he was going to live and the, the ministry that he was going to have. What a sense of joy and, well, I suppose there must have been terror associated with it too. What a responsibility is put upon me. But he came to realize this is written about me. So this day in the synagogue at Nazareth, he rolls up the scroll, he hands it back to the attendant, and he says to the people, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, look at their response, verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Now, up until the last few days, I always read this a different way than I now understand it. Throughout most of my life, I have thought that they were just kind of looking at one another, the older women in the congregation, and saying, oh, I, I just can't believe this boy has grown up to be such an articulate speaker, and he's famous. He's bringing notoriety to our little village of Nazareth. And, oh, yeah, I used to babysit him when he was just a baby. And, uh, you know, all, all of that kind of talk that goes on. That's the way that I've read it in the past. It was, this is kind of an expression of, Oh, I'm so proud of little Jesus. He's just grown up to be such a, uh, such a big boy. And, uh, but in the last few days, I think that this is more of a... How, how come he's talking like this? Who does he think he is? Son, I, I knew you when, when you couldn't walk. I, I, I used to babysit you. Isn't this Joseph's son? Of course, they were wrong about that. He wasn't Joseph's son, but that's the, way they, that's the way that they thought of it through all of those years. So I think that this is an expression of, why should we listen to you? Why don't you 
Why don't you do some of that fancy stuff we've been hearing about? That comes up next. And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So Jesus knows that that's what they're waiting on. They're waiting to see him do some of these magic tricks that they have heard that he has been doing in another part of the country. So that's a proverb they were going to say to him, physician, heal yourself. And he answers them with another proverb, and he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. So at this point, everybody is just, wow, he is really a great speaker. I can't wait to see him do something fancy. And then Jesus does something that changes their attitude in a hurry. Let's see what it is he says. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the region, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So they became so furious. I mean, just imagine in your mind how the scene changes, how that their faces change. And suddenly, they rush Jesus. I don't know how the building was constructed, but, but they started pushing and shoving and carrying and dragging him out of the synagogue. And I don't know how far it was to the brow of the hill where there was a cliff. But they deliberately took him to that place so that they could throw him over and kill him. And then uh, Jesus walked through the middle of them. Was it a miracle? Some assert it certainly was. Uh, Was it because of some other reason? We don't know. It's just speculation to say, how is it that he walked right through the midst of them? This is not the only time that something like this happens in the life of Jesus, though. But it is is, uh, worthy of contemplation. Now, there are only three things that I want to emphasize out of this text. And... The first has a, has a rather strange title, and it is driven by an illustration that I will use. The first point is a necklace of fake diamonds, a necklace of fake diamonds. The second thing that we'll see here is the keynote of Jesus' ministry. And the third thing is how to get yourself killed if you're a preacher. What will make people angry? Because the things that Jesus emphasized here that made the people so angry that they wanted to kill him are still things that make people angry today. Let's see why it is and why it ought not to be so. But first of all, that curiously named point, a, uh, a necklace of fake diamonds. I'm uh, using that to represent the kind of attention that Jesus was getting the kind of fame that he had accumulated. Back in verses 14 and 15, it says that uh, a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country, and he 
was glorified by all. So people were speaking highly of him. Later on in this chapter, they all are speaking well. They marvel at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They just are are wondering, how, how did this happen? So Jesus was famous. Jesus was becoming more and more famous. And fame is something that people really want to have. But I'm telling you that fame is a, de- is a necklace of fake diamonds. Why is it, do you suppose, that people are so eager to become famous? Why will they do so many silly things? Uh, why, will they, why will they work so hard to become famous? What is it about fame that people want so much? What makes it attractive? Well, I... I think that in one case, it is we want confirmation from other people that we are as good as we hope ourselves to be. We want other people to to buoy us up and support us in our insecurities. And we want other people to to admire us. And so we think that if if we are famous and people know about our gifts, then they will admire us. Of course, being famous doesn't always lead to admiration of gifts. I'm reminded of a proverb that I read in C.H. Spurgeon's collection of proverbs. The higher a monkey climbs, the more you can see his tail. I think of that sometimes with respect to politicians and uh, people who are placed in positions of administration for which they are ill-qualified. And they were just fine as long as they were the teacher, but when they become the principal... Then you, you see how incompetent they were. They, were. they were okay as a lower-level administrator, but when they become the boss, then you see just how full of defects that they are. Fame does not always translate into honor. But I think that's one of the reasons that people mistakenly seek after fame. Uh, I, I think really at base, when we are seeking after fame, we are seeking after love. But of course, Fame does not always equal love. Don't you find it interesting that some of the most famous people seem to be bothered by their fame? That they can't go to a restaurant without people coming up and pestering them for autographs or all kinds of inconveniences they put on disguises so that they won't be recognized? When Jesus told the parable of the sower, the seed that fell among thorns was choked out, he said, by the deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for other things. And, uh, and the riches of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for other things, and the cares of this world. Those are the three things. But you might cross out the deceitfulness of wealth and put in the deceitfulness of fame. Because while fame may look like true diamonds, fame is a necklace of fake diamonds. I enjoy reading short stories. In fact, I read a short story just this week by one of my favorite short story writers, O. Henry. And I've read many, many stories by O. Henry. Uh, But in illustrating this point, I'm reminded of a short story by Guy de Maupassant. So, Guy de Maupassant. I'm probably mispronouncing it, but it looks like de Maupassant. How many of you have read The Necklace? Any of you read The Necklace? So, I can see about... Half dozen hands raised. I'm going to ruin it for the rest of you. Because if you read it, if you read it cold turkey, then you really get surprised by the ending. But 
In a nutshell, the story is this. There is a poor man and woman, and the woman is, uh, they're married, and, they're, uh, and she is unhappy because she always wishes that she could move in a higher society. And one day the husband comes home with a ticket to a fancy ball. Instead of her rejoicing, she responds with anger uh, because she says, I have nothing to wear to that ball. And so he dredges up all the money that he possibly can to buy her a dress that she can wear to the ball. But still she's unhappy. She says, I don't have the appropriate jewelry to wear to that ball. And he says, well, what about your old friend who has become a, a countess? I can't remember. Someone, someone very rich. What about your old friend who has become very rich? Might she lend you some of her jewels? And so the poor woman says, it's worth a try. And so she goes to her wealthy friend and says, could you please lend me a necklace so that I can go to the ball? The, the friend lends her a splendid diamond necklace. And so she goes to the ball and she just has a wonderful evening at the ball. But when she arrives home that night, she discovers that the necklace is missing. This necklace is worth tens of thousands of dollars, and she's lost it. So she goes, retraces her steps, walking all the way, goes back. She cannot find the necklace. She and her husband are beside themselves, frantic with, with despair. And finally they say, well, we have to go buy another necklace just like it. Well, they don't have that kind of money. And so they, they, they borrow and do everything that they can, and, and they come up with enough money to buy this necklace. But it represents 20 or 30 years of their work. They're going to have to work for 20 or 30 years to pay for this necklace. But... She returns the necklace to her wealthy friend. The wealthy friend puts it in its, in its place. Nothing more is said. And so for the next years, this poor man and his poor wife work at two or three jobs, and they absolutely wear themselves out. So that after the passage of 20 or 30 years, she runs into her wealthy friend. And she thinks, well, I've paid the money back now, and so there's no harm in telling her the story. And so she tells her rich friend, I... Uh, I lost that diamond necklace, but you returned it, the rich friend says. Yes, my husband and I uh, bought one just like it, and we have spent all of these years uh, paying back the debt that we incurred to buy that necklace. And the rich woman stops, and she says, Oh, my dear, the necklace was fake. So I've ruined the story for you, but what an illustration. Are you going to come to the end of your life after having tried to get fame in this case or tried to get wealth or tried to get something else, and then at the end to have someone say to you, it was fake. All this while you were looking for something that it could never deliver. Fame is only a, a necklace of fake diamonds. And yet people will do such stupid things in order to get famous. And people will do such stupid compromising things to retain their fame. In the last four or five years, we have seen uh, evangelical leaders that we had such confidence in maintain positions for the sake of their reputation that meant that they had to step away from integrity to the gospel. Why did they do that? 
They just couldn't step away from that position of power, and they were afraid that if they stayed with the plain teaching of the Bible, that they were going to become unpopular. But Jesus resisted that temptation, and he spoke truth in such a way that it was no longer the same temptation to him in his hometown that it might otherwise have been. And in the process of declaring his ministry, he reads this passage of Scripture from Isaiah chapter 61. Let's look at it and see what emphasis Jesus puts on. So this is the second point, the keynote of Jesus' ministry. Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So Jesus says, The main reason that God has sent me here and the main reason that God has clothed me is not so that I can heal people and do miracles. The main reason that the Lord has clothed me with his Holy Spirit is so that I can proclaim good news to the poor. And as in several other places in the Bible, poor is used here not to talk about people who don't have anything financially, but people who recognize themselves to be bankrupt spiritually. It's the same sort of thing that Jesus means when he says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There is nothing meritorious about being poor in the literal sense of the word, that we don't have any money. There's nothing wrong with it either. You can be, an honor, you can be honorable as a poor man. And uh, the Bible does say that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's not that God has anything against rich people. It's just that rich people uh, are surrounded with so many distractions that sometimes they never get around to paying attention to spiritual things. But Jesus here is using the word poor in a symbolic way. I am preaching to people who realize that they have nothing of their own to bring to God, that they cannot say, you need me, Lord. They're able to come to God and say, I need you, Lord. And for those people, Jesus says, I'm coming to proclaim good news. And then there are others who feel like they are enslaved to sin. And Jesus says next, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. A few minutes ago, we sang Charles Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be? compliments this statement of Jesus perfectly. That stanza that says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. That's the kind of slavery that Jesus is talking about here. I've come to, replete, re, to release people who feel like they are in a dungeon that is a dungeon of sin and slavery to sin. The stanza goes on to say, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. A quickening ray is a ray that gives life. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Do you feel yourself today to be poor in spirit? Well, Jesus comes with good news. Do you feel yourself to be enslaved by sin? Maybe you have thought... In the past, I'm going to break out of this. I'm going to clean myself up. I'm going to do better. But again and again, you fall back. You find that you're bound by your sin. Well, the keynote of Jesus' ministry is that he's come not just to preach good news to the poor, but to proclaim liberty to the captives. And then recovery of sight to the blind. Not the people who think they know it all. 
He's, he's come to proclaim recovery of sight to those who realize, I cannot see the way. My soul is night. My heart is steel. I cannot see. I cannot feel. For light, for life, I must appeal to Jesus. Jesus can give you sight. Some of you perhaps have come here today and uh, you've been coming for a while, or maybe today is your first day, and you think, I, I would like to be saved, but I just don't know how. I'm not exactly sure what I should believe. I know that you preachers are always saying that it's by faith and that you've got to believe the gospel, but I, that's what I'm here for. I don't know what to believe. I'm blind, and I cannot see the way. Well, Jesus tells us in this passage of Scripture, believe this. I have come to give sight to the blind. I have come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. I have come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And maybe you feel like, oh, I wish that I could feel God's favor. Because I just feel like there's nothing but God's frown. Every time I look up to God, I'm ashamed because I know what I've done. And I I think, "I, I deserve God's wrath. I deserve to go to hell. I don't deserve to be saved. Well, Jesus says, I've come to tell you there's good news. God has proclaimed a year of his favor. And that year of the Lord's favor is still in effect right now. It has not yet come to to close. He has not yet said, now I'm going to proclaim the day of the Lord's vengeance. Today is the day of the Lord's favor. And so today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. But instead, listen to that voice that is speaking to you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. So Jesus did not just preach the gospel, but let's give a big exclamation to that. Jesus proclaimed the gospel. You look at this keynote and there are three times that the word proclaimed is used at the end of verse 8 or middle of verse 18. To proclaim good news to the poor. To proclaim liberty to the captives. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It is through the proclamation of the gospel that God grants faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so if you are listening to this sermon and uh, you say, "Oh, I, I wish that I knew the way of salvation, continue to listen to the word of God. If the Lord doesn't give you Uh, sight today, if the Lord doesn't set you free from your chains today, continue to listen to the Word of God and believe everything that God reveals to you. And so right now, believe there is a year of the Lord's favor. If you have been thinking there's no hope for me, then believe that there is a year of the Lord's favor and that it is right now. This is the keynote of Jesus' message. Now, up to this point, the people in in the synagogue are just marveling at how what a gifted speaker he is and how, how amazing it is that this young boy that I knew when he was a little kid has become such a well-known person. And then Jesus begins to preach a sermon to them. So this is the third point of my sermon, how to get yourself killed if you are a preacher or some truths that are sure to make people angry. And there are at least three things in this that made them very angry and that I think will still make people angry. And the first thing is this, Jesus proclaimed to them the sovereignty of God. 
Now, the sovereignty of God just means that God does whatever he pleases, and no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? The Bible teaches that uh, our God is in the heavens, and he has done whatsoever has pleased him. And there are many people who say God may do whatever he pleases, but the Bible teaches that God actually does do whatever he pleases. And so Jesus is here proclaiming the sovereignty of God, and he's talking about how that there were many people in Israel who had needs during the time of Elijah, but not one of them was cleansed of his leprosy, only Naaman the Syrian. And then he gives another example. There were many widows in Israel during the time of Elisha the prophet, but Elisha was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And Jesus is saying God is not obligated to have mercy upon anyone. He's not obligated to have mercy upon the people of Israel. In fact, in these two Old Testament stories, he had mercy upon people who were foreigners. Now there's a kind of a widespread misunderstanding that somehow or another, God has got to do everything that we want him to do. And some of you perhaps have the the mistaken notion that I can be saved whenever I want to. It's actually up to me to do all of this. And what Jesus is saying here is God is under no obligation whatsoever to save you If he is going to save you, it will be because of his own mere good pleasure. And so if you have been under the idea that you're in control of this and you're driving this, you're driving this cart, Jesus says, you just got to know God is the one who is in control. There's a whole lot of preaching that seems to give the impression that preachers are in, that sinners are in the control of salvation and that the sinner might say something like, Okay, Jesus, I feel sorry for you out there knocking on my door in the cold. And uh, you're just waiting for me to come up and answer the door. And uh, I feel sorry for you. And so I am going to open the door and I'm going to let you in. But don't expect too much of me. I really would like to escape hell. And and I'll become kind of religious, but I'm not going to become one of those fanatics. And there, there's, there are preachers who, who preach like that's the gospel. That's not the gospel. Instead, the sinner's cry is, I think, encapsulated beautifully in an old song that some of you grew up singing. First thing I remember in my life is my mom taking me on her lap and rocking me to sleep in a big red rocking chair with a wonderful squeak. That, uh, and she would sing. In fact, I would ask her to sing, sing me Rock of Pages. And in Rock of Ages... It says, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Naked I come to you for dress. And uh, I, I memorized another version of the song and can't can't quote all of the original the way that I wish I could, but the idea is, Lord, you are in control. I need to be sheltered by you. And then another old hymn that some of us grew up singing is, uh, 
Fanny Crosby's when she says, Pass me not, O gentle Savior, hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. I think that when Fanny Crosby wrote that, she perhaps had in mind Bartimaeus and his companion who were in the town of Jericho. And he heard that there was a crowd going by and he asks, Who is it? And they tell him it's Jesus of Nazareth. And so Bartimaeus begins to shout out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The crowd around him tells him, be quiet. He can't be bothered with you, but he shouts out all the more. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then Jesus stops and he says, what is it you want? And they said, well, be of good cheer. He's calling you. And so he makes his way over to Jesus and, and he says, What is it that you want? And Bartimaeus said, Lord, I want to receive my sight. I can imagine that Bartimaeus had heard about Jesus healing people who were crippled and Jesus healing people who were deaf. And then one day he heard a story about Jesus healing someone who was blind. And he thought, well, if Jesus can heal blind people, he can heal me. And so that day when Jesus passed by, he begins to say, Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. While you're healing other people, don't pass by me. Heal me, Lord. And Jesus did. And that is just exactly the way that you and I should approach this. I I, I need you, Lord. You are sovereign. I can't do anything that you need me to do, but just save me because you are a God who is full of mercy and you sent your son Jesus to pay for my sins. And I cling to Jesus. I cling to his cross and his resurrection Heal me for Jesus' sake. Have mercy upon me because of what Jesus has done. Jesus told two stories to illustrate something that I think also added to the obnoxiousness of his sermon. Not only did he preach about the sovereignty of God, but he also preached about the necessity of faith instead of works. And you know, we've all got this kind of idea that uh, we want to contribute a little bit to this. We don't want just charity. We've got enough pride that we want to contribute a little bit to this. And the Bible teaches us you've got to get rid of that idea. You must receive this gift by faith. You've got to trust in Christ and believe in him. And the two stories that Jesus told have, have this element in them. First of all, there was the story of Naaman the Syrian. Syria is located where Syria is today, so a very ancient country. And there was a, a, a very famous man in the, uh, in the army there, Naaman, who had leprosy, a dreaded disease for which there was no cure. And there was a little slave girl in his household who had been captured out of raids in Israel. And, and she says to her mistress, I wish that my master, Naaman, could go into Israel because in Israel there is a prophet who can heal people of leprosy. And so I'm sure that the Mrs. Naaman tells that to Mr. Naaman, and Naaman goes to the king and says, I've heard that there's a prophet in Israel, and the king says, I'll send you a letter of recommendation. So he sends a letter and takes it to the king of Israel, and the king of Israel says, this man is seeking a quarrel with me. And Elijah hears that uh, someone has come out of Syria wanting to be healed, and he says, send him to me. And so Naaman goes to uh, see Mr. Elijah. And Elijah doesn't even come out to greet him. Instead, he sends word and tells him, I want you to go to the Jordan River and wash yourself seven times. And Naaman is upset. 
He said, I, I can't believe he never even came. I thought he would come out and wave his hand over it and heal me. What's he telling me to, to bathe in that dirty old river for? We got better rivers than that in Syria. I'm going home. And he turns around and he starts back. And then some of his slaves come up to me and they say, Mr. Naaman, forgive me for speaking, but if the prophet had told you to do something very difficult, you would have tried it, wouldn't you? Why don't you try this very simple thing that he has said? Naaman says, you got a point. He turns around and he goes to the Jordan River and he goes out in the river and dunks himself down one time comes up, he's still got leprosy. Second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth times, still got leprosy. But then he dunks down and he comes up that seventh time and his flesh is made clean like a little child. Why did he do it? Well, his faith was weak, but he had enough faith to get into the stream and do it. And your faith might be weak too. And now... The gospel is proclaimed to you. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Plunge into that fountain. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be cleansed of your sins. And then the other story that Jesus gives that illustrates faith is uh, when Elisha had prayed and there was a famine in the land for three and a half years. And at first God fed him with the ravens bringing him bread and bringing him he was by the brook Kirith. But then the brook dried up, and so he goes to Zarephath, a town in Sidon, also out of the confines of Israel. And there he comes across a widow who is gathering sticks. And he says to her, go fix me something to eat. And she said, I have just got a little tiny bit of meal and a little tiny bit of oil. Enough to feed my son and me. I'm gathering these sticks. I'm going to go back and build a fire. I'm going to make a cake out of that. And we're going to eat it. And then we're going to die of starvation. And Elisha says, Well, make me one first. (laughs) Now, can you imagine what kind of faith it took? All right. So she goes and she makes him a cake first. And then... He must have said something like, all right, go back and make one for your son and you. She says, I told you that's all we had. He said, well, just go back and check. And she goes back and looks, and there's a little bit of meal and a little bit of oil. She thought she'd use the last of it, but there was a little bit left. And she makes cake for her and her son. I don't know if Elijah, Elisha spent the night, but the next morning he said, well, you make me another one of those cakes. She said, it's all gone. He said, well, just go check. And that went on and went on until the famine was over. There was always a little bit of oil, always a little bit of meal left. And Jesus says, if you're going to be in the kingdom of God, it's because God is in control and it's because you trust in God. And he is going to show favor to some people that you don't like. And that's the third thing that made these people so upset. So he preached the sovereignty of God. He preached the necessity of faith. 
and he preached the universality of God's love, that God loves people who live in Sidon. God loves people who live in Syria, and he's going to show mercy to them. And that made them so upset that they wanted to kill him. Now, how is it with you today? Are you like Nahum and saying, well, there, there, are, uh, there are other denominations who give other ways of salvation. Some people say you've got to be baptized to be saved. There are some people who say you've got to take the sacraments to be saved. Uh, I, I, think I, might, I think I might try some of those ways. You can try all of those ways, and it will be no better than a necklace of fake diamonds. In the end, you will be found still blind, still imprisoned by your sins, still oppressed, still penniless in the sight of God. But today there is a, a, a declaration of favor that is open to us. And so today, turn from your sin. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Bathe in the river of Jesus' blood so that your sins may be washed away and you may come forth clean. Jim Bob, come and lead us in a concluding hymn.